tell you just how gratifying it is uh, working with Heartland Baptist Bible College to see boys and girls come to school and men and women leave and then go out and see them serving the Lord in the ministry. And uh, I remember clearly when this young couple, uh, Brother Michael and Kelly, and then another uh, young couple that's now married from the same church in Deal, Maryland, uh, Ben and Grace, when they first came to Heartland. And uh, in fact, Brother Michael and Ben, they were our adopted sons. And so, you know, to see them now and to go about yesterday and see the vision for Greenpoint uh, and to see the heart that he has to serve and to, you know, have an impact and win souls and affect people's lives. It's, it's just a great, it's a great privilege. And uh, I want to thank the Lord for churches like this uh, that send students as well to Heartland Baptist Bible College. We've had wonderful experiences from the students from this church and uh, including some that are sitting right here tonight. And uh, we sure do thank the Lord for it. And my wife and I, uh, she could testify with me that to go around the country and whether I'm preaching in a church where one of our graduate pastors or not, most often I'm not, or whether there's even a graduate on church staff, generally there are some within the area and they'll show up at the meeting. And they're serving in another church nearby or something like that. So that's really, really, really a blessing. And so it's just a blessing to hear uh, Miss Kelly stand up and sing tonight. And, and I don't believe I'd ever heard her sing a solo. I don't think I had. And so thank you for that, uh, Kelly. What a great song. I haven't heard that song in years. And I sure do appreciate it. And so also we're going to be praying for uh, Brother Peter. And it may take us a while to make a true uh, Oklahoman out of him. Uh, others call us Okies for short, and that wasn't necessarily a title that was meant to be a blessing. Uh, back in the days of the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl days, people looked upon the poor, poverty-stricken, uh, drought-stricken state of Oklahoma, and, and when they fled Oklahoma and went to California, in disdain, the California people called them Okies. But now... I'm proud to be an Oki. I'm thankful to be an Oki. And how many of you think we can make an Oki out of Brother Peter? Yep. Well, okay. We got our word. <laughs> yeah. His, his sister believes that it's possible. But anyway, we're thankful for this time. And thank you for the good fellowship, the testimonies tonight. Good. Thank you for the good singing. And I appreciate it very much. And I know I speak for my wife as well. We'll look forward to a little fellowship after the service tonight. Tonight we are in the book of Matthew once again. Only this time we are in what is one of my absolutely most favorite passages of Scripture, which has to do with the Sermon on the Mount as recorded by Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And where we're going to read is right out of, I suppose you could call it, right out of the heart of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter number 6. So if you'd have your Bibles open there. Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> now, if you found your place, why don't we stand together? And we're going to read several verses uh, tonight, beginning in verse number 19. Matthew 6 and verse 19, <clears throat> where, the, where Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount, which um, I've, I've called over the 
last though, 25, 30 years, I've called it in the discipleship class with Jesus. Because if you went back to the beginning in chapter 5, Jesus, the multitudes were there. He took his disciples, uh, called them unto himself. He sat down and taught them saying. And then chapter 5, 6, and 7 is what he taught his disciples that was required for them to be his disciples. And because this teaching lives in the Word of God, then he continues to say what he has said. In other words, what he taught the disciples to be is what I'm supposed to be if I'm a genuine disciple or follower of Jesus Christ. If in fact I, it's more than talk, and, and if in fact I have embraced his teachings to appropriate to my own life, then the life is supposed to look like what we see in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. All right, so now in verse number 19, we begin to read here. Where Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body, now pay attention particularly to verse 22 and 23. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. Verse 24. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. My dear friend, he did not say, you shouldn't serve God and mammon. He said very emphatically, you cannot serve God and mammon. Quite a difference between the two, isn't there? You shouldn't do that. But Jesus said, you cannot do that. Very emphatically. And he said, no man, uh, you cannot serve God and mammon. Verse 25. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take thought off a raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much, clothe, much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Second time now he says this. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Parentheses. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. End of parentheses. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The third time now he says it, Take therefore no thought 
for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Father, we want to ask you now to bless our time here together as you have blessed. And I pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit, that you'd help me to communicate, to preach your word with plainness and with clarity. And then I pray also that you would arrest the attention of your people. And so that for these next moments, uh, you would have our attention and we would hear from you and that we would embrace what you teach, what a difference it can make in our life. And so, God, I pray now that you would add your blessings to the time. I pray that you would help us to overcome any weariness or any uh, uh, fatigue of the flesh and of the mind. I pray also that any distractions might be very limited and that we would manifest a desire to hear from you. And I pray that your name might be glorified through it all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you and God bless you. Why don't we admit this together, shall we? If uh, we are going to be serious, genuine disciples of Jesus Christ, then we are going to do so in spite of many potential distractions, opposition, and matters in this world that can absolutely mess up our focus but good. It's the truth, isn't it? It's, it? It is sometimes difficult to maintain focus in the daily walk and the daily life. I, I would put it this way even. In the grind of living, in the grind of going through this life, in this world, uh, sometimes it becomes very difficult to focus upon what we know as a follower of Jesus, we are supposed to focus upon. So we might ask the question, how does a person stay focused? How is it that we are going to be able to stay focused and be what we are supposed to be? Or I might ask it this way, in relation to church life. In relation to church life, with all the strange and and, uh, strange and and uh, weird winds that, of change that are blowing out here, how does a church stay focused? Because there are many strange winds blowing, and there are many distractions, and there are many voices out there, like the pastor suggested in, in another little context a while ago. There are many voices out there saying, well, you need to be like this, or your church needs to be doing this, or your church needs to do this, and your church needs to do that. But I'll tell you right now, I care about our culture and our society. Obviously, we should as a child of God. I want to influence our culture and our society with the Word of God. But I will say this about our culture. I will say this about our society right here in the United States of America. And you can take this anywhere in the world that you want to. Uh, that uh, a culture is a terrible source for information uh, to try to discern what a church is supposed to be. The attitude of modern day gurus of church go- growth that we should go ask people, what do you want, and then try to craft a church that would suit what they desire is a concept totally foreign to the Bible. As a matter of fact, 
I'm asking you this. What would an unbeliever know what Jesus expects of his church? After all, if we are an authentic church, it's his, not ours, not our cultures, not our cities, not our state, not anything. It's his church. So how would the world know what a New Testament church is supposed to be like? And besides that, the Bible is not vague. The teaching about what a New Testament church is for and what it's supposed to be like, it's not hid in a fog out here somewhere. It's not in some deep mist that we can't understand. The Bible clearly states the purpose for the existence of a New Testament church in this age. And so the question is, not what is a church supposed to be, but the question is, how does a church stay focused on doing and being what we are supposed to do and be? And how does an individual believer stay focused? How do we do that? Now, Brother Sam, I'm wondering why you're giving so much emphasis to focus and staying focused. Well, I'll tell you why. Because, because in our text, Jesus is dealing or teaching his disciples at a time when they have lost focus. When, in, in other words, what I mean by that is they are not seeing clearly. All right, now let me show you that. I asked you to pay particular attention a moment ago to verses number 22 and 23. And I'm afraid these are verses that often don't get the attention they deserve in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, this great chapter where we are. But in verse 22, notice what Jesus said to his disciples and to all would-be disciples. Verse 22. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Now somebody says, I, that's the thing. I don't know what that means. Well, don't make it complicated. Don't make it hard. There's no need to make it hard. When Jesus said the light of the body is the eye, well, you and I can understand what that means. We understand that the light of the body, in other words, if we have a good eye and the light, uh, rays of light come in and the process is clear and good, then we are able to give light to the whole body so that we can function, so that we can navigate, and so that we can go about. Uh, we had in our church for a number of years a blind piano player, and some of you have been around people perhaps that have been beset by blindness. And uh, it's amazing to me how uh, many of them, like the man that I'm talking about, adapt and learn and are able to navigate. In fact, uh, I've gone many times into a room or into the auditorium or a classroom or something like that with this individual. And uh, I said, just a second, Dale, let me turn on the light. And you know what he used to say to me? He used to say, you sighted people are handicapped. You're always running around looking for light switches. And he said, that's never an issue with me. Well, obviously, he's, he's blind. And so the rays of light are not coming into his eye. So he either had a dog that would help him about or a dog like me, and he referred to me that way a time or two, to lead him about, or he had a stick out in front of him because the light was not coming into his eye, and therefore he had to find another way for his body to be able to navigate and to get about. Now, Jesus said, the light of the body is the eye. Now, watch this. If... Verse number 22, therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body should be full of light. Now when he says, if thine eye be single, I just have to say that single has to do with this. You are able to singly focus. In other words, it is a phrase or a term that has to do with a healthy eye. An eye that is functioning well without hindrances. 
All right? So here's what a single eye is. Now, I'm not an expert at this, so just kind of bear with me. But we are able to see because rays of light. Now, you don't look out here and say, look at that ray of light. But they're there. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to see. And so those rays of light, they come into the eye. When they come to the eye, they meet the lens of the eye. The lens of the eye, through an amazing process, transmits those rays of light back to the, uh, the retina, to the back of the eye. And then the retina takes the, uh, the uh, ray of light that has come in and transfers it in the back of the eye to the optical nerve. And the optical nerve takes it then to the brain, and the brain then processes what has just happened. Isn't that amazing? Quite an accident, isn't it? According to the evolutionists, this is quite an accident. Just happened that way. But you and I know better than that. So here's what a single eye is. A single eye is where the ray of light comes in. I had an optometrist tell me that it's a healthy eye. The rays of light come in singly and sharp like an arrow. And they meet the eye. The lens processes, takes it back to the back of the eye, to the optical nerve, and the optical nerve to the brain. And he said, when the eye is healthy, they come in sharp like an arrow, and the eye functions, and you're able to see well. So that's what the single eye is. Jesus said, if your eye is single, stop here, if you are able to see clearly, then you will function properly. If you are able to see clearly, then you have the ability to get about and to function in your body well and accomplish what needs to be accomplished and to avoid disaster and to be able to navigate about. And uh, so sometimes you're driving in New York City and you wonder if the people that are driving that car can see. Isn't that right? And sometimes the same thing is true when you get in the crowd and you're walking. But I'm just saying when the eye is single, you are able to focus well, and you are able, therefore, to function properly and to function well. All right, now, look in verse 23. But Jesus said, but if thine eye be evil. Now, what is an evil eye? Well, I can remember as a kid growing up, I would hear the term evil eye. And if you heard uh, your mother say to one of my sisters, you stay away from them, they have an evil eye. Then we know what, we was ta- what, he was ta- what she was talking about, don't we? It means that they're up to no good. It means that they are not morally sound and trustworthy. That's what the evil eye meant. But here the evil eye doesn't have to do with that necessarily. Here the evil eye has to do with an eye that is not functioning properly. In other words, uh, through the process of time, now you notice I'm wearing some seeing glasses here, and so when I take my, when, when I have my glasses on, I can read the pages of the Bible with the help of these uh, things below the line here on my lens, and then uh, when I look out here, because of the help that I have here, then I can focus and I can see all of you clearly, and the people that I know, I can tell who you are, and all of this kind of thing, it's real good. But when I take my glasses off, I can't read one word on this page, I can't see. It's a blur. All the words are blurred together. And now your faces are blurred. Quite frankly, a lot of the men look better with my glasses off. What do you think about that, ladies? But anyway, everybody's face is an absolute blur right now. Now, the people I know well, I could single out and tell who they are. And so what is your problem, Brother Sam? My problem is I have an evil eye. That's what Jesus would call it. Mine eye is evil. Now, all that simply means is something is affecting the rays of light coming in. 
And I realize this isn't the only eye issue or eye disease, but through the process of time, what happens to our eyelid is very similar to what happens to the rest of our body. In other words, every day that we live, we have cells that die. Uh, we have cells that die in our blood, and we have cells that die uh, on our skin and on our flesh. You know that according to forensics and, uh, and crime investigation now, oftentimes they can tell the DNA of a person by simply uh, finding a skin cell. Now what happens is on the eye, there are cells that die as well. And over the process of time, if we live long enough, almost everybody is going to experience it. Most people are, unless they go in absolute denial. Then they're going to experience, like the pastor right now is using these little cheap reader glasses because he's in denial that eventually he's going to have to break down and get some bifocals so he can be able to read. And people associate that with what? Old age. You wear bifocals, you must be ancient. You know, I mean, that's the way I used to think till I was 44. And since then, I couldn't see without the glasses. Then I, uh, you know, changed my mind about that. But through the process of time, the cells on the eye lens begin to die. But hold on just a second. They also don't all wash away. Some of them stick together. And when they stick together, it creates, it creates a, a, a haze or an astigmatism over the eye. And then my doctor told me, then when that happens and the rays of light begin to come in, instead of coming in singly and sharp, and he used the word singly, in coming, instead of coming in singly and sharp, they hit the matter that's covering the eyelids and the arrow splashes, or that ray of light. It splatters. And when it splatters, then it messes up the whole process so that by the time this gets back to the brain, it's fuzzy. And there is a blur, and we are not able to see clearly. Now, somebody says, all that time for this? Or oh, no, 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 wait, stop. Who taught that anyway? Now, how many of you believe that Jesus' primary concern is our physical eyesight? That is not his primary concern. That certainly wasn't his primary concern with his disciples. His primary concern with his disciples was this, that they were having spiritual eyesight problems or their spiritual eye was not functioning singly so they could focus clearly their physical i'm sorry their spiritual eye had some kind of an astigmatism over it and they were not focusing clearly so jesus said if you have an evil eye then what comes in is not going to be clear and it's going to be darkness and if the only thing that's coming is you is darkness how great is that darkness and so he is saying to his disciples, I'm going to have to teach you to, proper foc uh, to focus properly. I'm going to have to give you some, mm, listen to this, spiritual eye surgery so you can see well again because the evidence is you are not seeing well. What, what do you mean they're not seeing well? Well, Jesus teaches them, men, you're trying to serve two masters. You can't do that. No man can. Okay, let me read it to you. Let's see. I know the King James is hard, but let's try this, shall we? No man can serve two masters. <laughs> Makes you wonder what all the problem is, doesn't it? 
No man can serve two masters. Well, why didn't he tell them that if that isn't what they were trying to do? And you put it in the whole body of the work here, chapter number 6, and you can tell very clearly that the disciples were at a stage in their fellowship of Jesus where they are indeed trying to serve two masters. Well, give me more uh, detail, Brother Sam. Okay, at the end of verse number 24, he says, Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Now I want to ask you a question. We know God is good. Is mammon good or is mammon bad? Well, mammon is not of itself bad. I can remember a time in my own youthful thinking that if the, the way the preacher preached, I thought if it was mammon, it must be bad stuff. But mammon's not bad forevermore. I'm wearing mammon right now. Mammon is not bad. We're going to go after the service tonight if all of you cooperated, and we're going to have us something to eat here. Yeah, food is mammon. Mammon is not bad. We put some of it in the offering plate, and we commit our resources to the Lord, and uh, we are able to support missionaries and start churches and do all these kind of things. Money is not of itself evil. Whoever told you that? God's Word never told you that. And so mammon is not of itself bad. In other words, mammon can be a very good servant, but mammon is a pathetic master. And we were never meant to serve mammon. Mammon in the process of serving God? Yes. Us becoming a slave or a servant to mammon? No. No man can serve two masters. Now, here's where the disciples were. They were trying to serve two masters. Because on the one hand, they are focusing over here and very much concerned about the, what I'm going to call, for the sake of simplicity, the low-level issues of life. And this is where their focus was. He calls it to their attention twice. That they are giving thought to. Giving thought to. Excuse me. Now. And Jesus tells them, take no thought. But they are giving thought. Now, don't miss this. They are giving thought to food, drink, clothing. Now, Brother Sam, you're married and you have children. You raised a family. Don't you think those are rather necessary things in life? Food and drink and clothing? Yes, they are. They absolutely, they are not necessarily luxuries. People can make it that way, but they are not necessarily luxuries. If you don't have food, you're not going to survive forever. If you don't have drink, then your bodily functions are going to break down. And if you don't have raiment, then that's number one. It's not decent in weather like this, and you'll freeze to death at the other time of year. So certainly, absolutely, all of these things are necessary. But hold on, when Jesus said, take no thought, what he is saying is this. He is saying, don't have anxiety over these things. Don't have anxious anxiety. In other words, don't fret over these things. Don't have anxiety, don't fret. Or another way would be to say, don't worry about these type of matters. Because I can prove it to you, at this particular juncture where Jesus' disciples were uh, attempting to follow him, Jesus is very mindful of where they are. And so he says, men, you are focused on the wrong things. You are focused on the low-level issues of life. And you are taking thought for You have anxiety. If Jesus accuses them of that, then that's where they were. He knows all of people, and he knows what is in man. He needs not any that any should testify to him of man. So he knew his disciples, and he knew right where they were, and he saw, watch, that the high-level issues of life 
were not of primary concern to them. Their primary concern had to do with food and had to do with drink and had to do with water. The high-level issues of life had to do with his father's purposes and them becoming discipled to fulfill his father's purposes. So Jesus is trying to lift their thinking way over here to the high-level issues of life which have to do with the work of God and the purposes of God. All the while, his disciples are over here and they're saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? No, it says it in there twice. It's very, very clear. That's where they were. That's where their focus was. That's where their attention was. Or we could put it this way. These boys had an evil eye. They were not singly focused. They had an evil eye and they were not seeing clearly because if they were seeing clearly in the presence of the Son of God and according to his teaching, their concerns and interests and passions would have been way above groceries and drink and clothing. Now, nobody's shouting amen, jumping over the pew saying hallelujah, amen. But you can't argue with that either, can you? That is where they were supposed to be thinking about the high-level issues, and here's where they were thinking. Now, shall we be fair to the disciples? I don't think it's wrong to be. You can be a good Bible-thumping preacher and still be fair. So I want to be fair to the disciples. And here, to be fair to the disciples, we have to remember they had just newly started following Jesus. I'm taking a... Uh, somewhat of an educated guess, but I don't think they could be any more than three months into their fellowship with Jesus when he had chosen them. That would be max, in my opinion. So let's say, though, just for the sake of discussion, that they'd been with Jesus somewhere in the neighborhood of three months. And when you consider where the disciples came from, fisherman, tax collector, and various occupations of the world, of the mundane things of the world. When you consider where they've been, fishermen was not, a, you know, it was not really, in other words, you wouldn't say to your child, why don't you go out and hang out with the fishermen? Because they were rough. And they were often vain and profane. And so the, you know, seven of the disciples came from the region of the Sea of Galilee and were no doubt fishermen themselves, not for, not for uh, recreation, but for occupation. And so you had fishermen and they'd lived that kind of life and they'd worked in that kind of world. And you had Matthew, the tax collector, and you had people of other concerns and interests that Jesus had chosen to follow him. And so can you imagine the incredible contrast to having worked in the world the way they worked and now they are every day with Jesus, the Son of God, in whom was no sin, holy, harmless, and undefiled, and separate from sinners. They are with the God-man himself. And I can only imagine what an incredible, drastic change that is from the life they had. And at first, I'm sure it was very exhilarating, and they were saying, wow, can you believe we get to do this? Because by then, he was healing the sick. He was doing all kinds of miracles. By then, he had been teaching not only them, but the multitudes, and they heard him speak. Now, come on, you couldn't have heard Jesus speak without being captivated. Even his enemies said at one time, never a man spake like this man. So when the Son of God speak, uh, spoke, then you knew. Every word he said was from God. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what he said. I don't say anything my father didn't give me to say. Every work that he did was the work given to him by God because he did only those things that his father gave him to do. 
So here they are in the presence of Jesus. Now somewhere along the way, I'm just throwing out this as a possibility. Somewhere along the way, one of those disciples must have said while they were discussing things, one of them must have said, you know, something just came to me lately. Yeah, what's that? I haven't had a paycheck in three months. I'm not sure how we're supposed to function, carry on like this, because, yeah, it's really been something to be in the presence of Jesus, to hear him teach and to watch his life <laughs> and, and to hear him pray and to hear him speak and to watch the miracles that he is performing. I mean, this is absolutely unbelievable that we have been selected to travel with him and to be with him and to be taught by him. But, you know, um, we have responsibilities beyond this, and we're not getting paid anything. There's no indication in there that every Friday Jesus said to the treasurer, uh, give everybody their pay. How were they making it? Well, it's probably just them. Well, Peter had a mother-in-law. If a man has a mother-in-law, it's a pretty good sign he has a wife. If you have a wife, you have some responsibilities. Come on, that wasn't 21st century America. If a man has a wife and children, he has responsibilities. That didn't go over very good, but I'm sticking with it. If a man has a wife and children, he has responsibilities. And for all I know, several of the other disciples would have been married and possibly had children. Because over in chapter 11, Jesus said, If ye, or chapter 7 rather, If ye being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more should your heavenly Father give good things to those that uh, he cares for? And so Jesus said to his disciples, You aren't even the, of the holy character of my Father, but yet you being evil or having the capacity of sin and evil, even you know how to give good gifts to your children. So I'm assuming that some of them had children. Come on. And if you have children, then you've got to think about They've got to eat. They've got to drink. They got to have clothing. They have to have shelter. And so here they are following Jesus. And, and I would like to have gone up to them and uh, bit my ear and heard their discussion. Man, I tell you, I don't know what we're going to eat. I mean, I just tell you, where's the food going to come from? I mean, you know, I mean, how's this going to go on? How's he going to perpetuate this? How are we going to have food? I'd like to run up and said, oh, my goodness, yeah. When's the last time you had food? Well, today, oh, you've eaten today? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, before today, when was the last time you had food? Well, we ate the day before, too. Oh, have you eaten every day? Well, yes. Well, when's the last time you had anything to drink? And we're not talking about recreational drinking. We're talking about drinking the stuff that is necessary for us, our bodies to function and everything. When's the last time you had it? Oh, well, we've had it. You haven't been without drink and water? Well, no, no. Well, and, and what about the clothing you have on? Well, I mean, we're fine. We're fine. Well, what is the anxiety about here? Well, we're just kind of looking out three months ahead of now and six months ahead of now and a year from now. And if we keep this kind of thing up, we just don't understand how this is going to work. Oh, so I see. You're having anxiety and you're anxious over here and you are fretting. Now, hold on just a second. And while those things are necessities, watch this. If that's what has control of them, 
If that's what has their focus, if that's what they're wringing their hands about, if their passion is to try to figure out how we're going to eat and drink and have clothing for ourselves and for our families, how is all this going to work out? Look at me, please. If you're over here wallowing and focusing upon that, you most certainly are not focusing up here. Because you can't be both places at the same time. And where was their focus? According to Jesus, where was their focus? I'm here to tell you, if their focus had been over here on the high-level issues or the purposes of his father, there would have been no necessity for him to teach what we have right before us. So we know that they were malfocused. And they had an evil eye. And they couldn't see clearly. And when they couldn't see clearly, they consequently didn't focus where they were supposed to focus because they are over here not just giving, not just letting it pass through their mind giving thought, but the intent and the, even the definition is their anxiety, their worry, their major concern was right over here. And Jesus is going to correct that. Now watch, here's where he's going to go. He's going to take them from here to here. That's what he's going to do. Because he didn't call them aside to worry about food, drink, and clothes. I'm not going on until somebody says amen. He did not call them aside to himself so that they might give their focus and attention to food, drink, and clothes forevermore. He called them aside to follow himself so that they, like he, might accomplish what his father and their father has for them to do. Does this make any sense so far? Whether it does or not, I guess I have to move on. So I want you to notice something here. Jesus begins to teach them, and not only does he tell them you can't serve two masters, but Jesus said over here to his disciples in verse 25 and following, Jesus says, if I can sum it up for you, here's what he says. Jesus said, men, now look at me here just a second. Your focus over here." And your worry anxiety and anxiety about it, the stress that you are experiencing, the, the anxiety and the fear and the worry that you are having, listen to what he's going to say. He's going to say to them, this is not becoming of one who has a heavenly father like you have a heavenly father. Now, did you know, I, I didn't know this till just lately. But did you know that in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus told his disciples 12 times. You can count them yourself later, not now. 12 times. Jesus told his disciples that his father is their father. 12 times. 16 times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his disciples, your heavenly father or your father. And I never really noticed this till just lately. As much time as I spent in the Sermon on the Mount, I, I was just, uh, it, it would be, well, it blessed my heart. It shook me up and woke me up too. Because Jesus, it's like one of, this, one of the themes or messages of the Sermon on the Mount is to his disciples, men, please, my father is your father. And the Word of God still cries out the same message to you, ladies and gentlemen, and to me, that Jesus uh, prayed to His Heavenly Father and did only those things that pleased His Heavenly Father and makes it abundantly clear in His Word that His Father is our Father. Amen. And the whole point is this. What are you worried about? 
with such a father as you have. Why are you why are you over here worried about food, drink, and clothing on the low-level issues of life when he has great and eternal purposes of his and your heavenly Father uh, who you're supposed to be focusing over here? But we don't know what we're going to eat. But we don't know what we're going to drink. But we don't know what we're going to wear. We don't know about the necessities of life, how we're going to make it. So you think that of your Father, do you? That he would call you to his high purposes and then let you starve and then let you dehydrate and die because of dehydration and you think he would let you die because of cold and nakedness are you serious is that what you think of your heavenly father whether it was or not that was the message they were sending I said whether it was or not that was the message they were sending why are you guys worried? No food, no drink, no clothing, or at least no prospects for the long term. And no food, no drink, no clothing. So what are you supposed to be doing? Well, he wants us over here focusing on the high-level issues, but we haven't got this figured out yet. Well, whose high-level issues are these? These are our Father's high-level issues. And he's called you to them? Uh-huh. So what's he going to do? Leave you over here? You know, God has a pretty good record already of taking care or showing his ability in matters of like food, drink, clothing. I said, by the time you come to Matthew 6, God's already got a pretty good record of that. How many of you read in your Old Testament? Have you ever read in your Old Testament about Israel in the wilderness? Did you read how many people died of starvation? Have you read that? Well, none of them did. Have you read how many people were out there and because of the water shortage, have you ever studied how many people died of dehydration in that wilderness journey? Well, none of them did. But have, then, or, well, yeah. but have you ever read how many of those people suffered because of overexposure, because they had no clothing? Well, no, none of them did. As a matter of fact, what God did is he made their clothing last from the beginning of the journey until the end of the journey, and they never changed their clothing. They only had one set of clothing, and they never changed it except for the washing thereof and put it back on. And God made their clothing last for 40 years. Can you imagine American women wearing the same thing for 40 years? Or four days? <laughs> Hi, ladies. Thank God for you. <laughs> no, that's, quite, that's something to think about, isn't it? But hold on just a second. Uh, no, if they know their history at all, this God who is their father has already taken care of people in supernatural ways and he fed them six days a week for 40 years and they had sufficient. And he brought water so much as out of a rock on two different occasions, turned bitter water to be made sweet on another occasion. God took care of his own children and he made their clothing to last. Now we have some, well, they would have been in Jesus' day, some modern day followers. And what are they doing? They are over here saying, we don't know what we're going to eat. We don't know what we're going to drink. We don't know what we're going to put on. And they're all been out of shape and concerned about it. And Jesus said, so that's what you think of your father. That is a poor reflection upon your heavenly father and it reminds them of that relationship 16 times in the Sermon on the Mount 12 times in chapter 6 I don't know how everybody in here was raised but I guess we were poor you know I hear all these stories people are so happy because they were poor 
And now they can talk about it, how they suffered and everything. I, I guess we were poor. I don't know. My dad was a sharecropper, and sometimes you had a crop, and sometimes you didn't. Sometimes we got to buy store clothes, and sometimes we wore basically what my mother made. And she was a good seamstress. Thank the Lord for that. We always ate good because we raised our own stuff. But money was in shortage. There were times I knew it. I was aware of it. I mean, my dad never sat down and discussed the finances with the family. But I can reflect back now and see that there were some very stressful times financially. But, you know, I, I left to go to Bible college just about the time I turned 19 years of age. And uh, when I went to Bible college, from the time that I was born to 19 years of age, do you know how many, can you imagine how many nights I laid awake in my bed saying, are we going to have anything to eat? Will I have any clothing for school? Will we have any water? Because where we lived, we had a very poor well and drank out of a cistern. If you didn't get enough rain, you didn't have cistern water. And it cost money to have water hauled out to your house. Will we have anything to drink? You know how many nights I laid awake worrying about that? Yes. None. Never. Not one time. I asked my older brothers. They're 8 and 10 years older than me. They saw more hard times than I did. I asked him, did you ever worry about how things are going to be taken care of, whether you'd have food or drink or clothing or any of that kind of thing? Did you ever worry about a roof over your head? Did you ever worry about that? My brothers looked at me like, what are you talking about? Well, no, we never worried about it. Can somebody take a guess as to why we never worried about it as children? Because we had a father. A responsible father who was committed to his children and to his family. We never worried about it because we knew. Dad will take care of it. Dad will take We all did our share of work. I'm talking farm life. You know, we all did our share of work. But none of us had enough sense to know that we, whether we were earning our way or not. We just did what we were told to do. We never worried about drinking or food or about clothing and those kind of things. We may not have, my sisters especially may have had times when they weren't totally satisfied with their wardrobe. But they always had a wardrobe. Like we wouldn't worry. We didn't worry because dad would take care of it. Every one of us knew without ever talking about it. We knew deep inside whatever is necessary, our dad's going to take care of it. That's what we'd observed. That's what we'd seen. And that's the way he did. And that's the way we're raised. And my dad, I found out, was not perfect. As a matter of fact, he had faults and he had failings in his life. But I have a heavenly father who has no failing, come on, somebody help me, and has no fault, nor even the capacity to fail. And lo and behold, if many of God's children aren't giving attention to the things they ought to give attention to, because they are over here concerned about the low-level issues of life, that is a pitiful reflection upon your heavenly father. Who, I said, who feeds birds? What are you guys worried about? We don't know if we're going to have enough to eat. They're over here worried about whether they have to eat while the birds are eating every day. And the bird has no ability to perpetuate a harvest or to lay it up in store. And yet the birds eat every day. Now, I'm assuming this is so 
Jesus said, your heavenly Father feedeth them. So I guess the bird population of the world getting to eat has to do with the provision made for by our heavenly Father. He's the creator of birds, but he never talked about being the father to birds. And we became his children at quite a price. I said, we became his children at quite a price. I said, it was quite a price for God to make provision for us to be his children. And while he's feeding birds, we think if we give attention to his issues and to his primary concerns, he will let his children do without. While he feeds birds. I don't want to take too long. Goodness sakes, I don't. But I, I read the most interesting thing back years ago about Sam Walton before he died. Because there was a publication in a you know, in the media about the richest men in America and in the world. Sam Walton of the Walmart fame was one of them. And a guy was reading at the same time, a Christian man was reading in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, and he was reading about the wealth of Sam Walton. And he got this idea in his mind. He was a person that was, uh, his whole livelihood had to do with dealing in numbers and mathematics and also, he was a member of the Audubon Society, which is the uh, a bird watching club or something like that, the Audubon Society. And so with his interest in birds, also being a Christian, his knowledge here, also being a man who loved to crunch numbers, which is a totally weird concept to me, but he loved to deal in numbers. And so this man got it in his mind, I'm going to see, and he was thinking about the wealth of Sam Walton, I'm going to determine by the technology and the programs that were available to him at that time, I am going to determine how many birds there are in the world. Quite a task. But with the computer programs that were available and everything, and with the kind of mind he had, he did a scientific research and came up with what he and others deemed to be a legitimate estimate of the bird population of the world. And his next project was how much bird food it would take to feed the birds of the world for one day. So he calculated that by the same type of a program. Came up to a scientific conclusion. Here's what it would take to feed the birds of the world one day and he came to this amazing discovery that if you liquidated all the assets of Sam Walton turned it into cash for the purpose of buying bird food you could not purchase enough bird food with his wealth to feed the birds of the world even one day <laughs> and our heavenly father Jesus said feeds them every day And the birds are out there flying around eating the provision of the Father. And his children who have been made his by his doing and who have been given a high pur higher purpose than eating. I said they have a higher purpose in life than stuffing their bellies. There's a higher purpose in life than food, drink, and clothing. Listen to the world talk. I do. I travel all the time. I'm in, on airplanes most of the time. My wife and I aren't flying this summer, and we're enjoying that part. But I fly all the time. I listen to people talk. Well, what are you going to do? We're getting home on a Friday or a Saturday, and they're heading off. Oftentimes when I'm going out a Saturday, then others are going home. What are you going to do tonight? Well, we're going to go out to eat, maybe shop a little, going to drink. We're going to a nightclub. We're going to drink. And I just hope I remember over the weekend the fun I had when Monday comes. I have to go back to work again. They hope they can remember. Now, you know there are people like that out here, and there are millions of them. 
and they live from day to day and week to week, and their whole life is about food and drink and clothing and what they can do with the money they make and power and influence and a position and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's true. That's what they live for. That's it. That's it. God's people have high-level issues. The, the rest, most of the world out here doesn't think you're a genius for being here on a Sunday night. Wow, those people are amazing at something. They think most people out there would probably think you've got a screw loose up here somewhere. What are you doing going to church Sunday night too? Everybody knows you just have to go on Sunday morning if you go at all. Yeah. And so here are God's people with a higher purpose in life, and they have anxiety while Jesus feeds birds and clothes lilies. I don't have time to tell the whole story, but these lilies, I mean, there's a big story behind it, but they have incredible, magnificent beauty, more beautiful than Solomon in all of his glory. When he was at the apex of his reign and his, uh, and, and his time as king, when he would come out and make a public appearance, just the magnificent garb that he wore and the decking of silver and gold and jewels and the kind of man that Solomon would have appeared in public to be. And Jesus said that Solomon at his best cannot compare to the lilies that have been closed to my father. And these lilies that he speaks of are called the hula lily. And they say the amazing thing about the hula lily is the more you examine it, the more beautiful it comes. The closer you look at it, the more beautiful it is. And Solomon, actually, the closer you look at him, the uglier he gets. Did that right. And that hula lily, short-lived glory, is a, the object of beauty and adoration one day, and it's in the oven the next day. Because when it declines, they gather it up and sell it to the bakers, and the bakers toss it in their oven. And the hula lily would create this instant heat, intense, in, instant and intense heat that was perfect for some of their baking products, we are told by the historians of the customs of the day. And they would use that hula lily, and then after they would bake those products, they'd pull it out, throw the ashes out on the ground. And God's people are worried about clothing, and God clothes the lily whose beauty lasts two or three days. I said whose beauty only lasts two or three days, and then it's thrown in the oven and then tossed out on the ground, and God's people are worried. Look at me just a second. Jesus said, is not the, is not the life of my disciple more than meat and raiment? Isn't your life about something higher than food and drink and clothing? I can't, make that. I can't make an accusation to anybody, but I can tell you this. There are churches where people sit, where some people never tithe because they just can't imagine how it would work out that I could give 10% of my income to God and still survive. So they don't. I know that. I know that's true. I know that from a meeting I just recently came from where a lady came up after the service. A lady said, I've been in church, and the church that is there, she said, I prayed for this church to be here. And you know what she said? I have never tithed. I have never tithed. But I'm going to start because I just couldn't understand how I could give that money away and still survive and make it on my income. But I know God will take care of me. And years and years and years as a believer, she said, I have never tithed, but I'm going to start. And there might be somebody right in here 
you don't tithe, you don't give to missions, you're not generous, you're not liberal like God is with you. You don't show that to other people and in the Lord's work. You might be tight-fisted and you might be watching over your money and worried about it and anxious about it and all of that. Well, if you're going to serve it, you got reason to worry. I said, if money is your master, you got good reason to worry. But if you let God have authority over it, did you know? Look, life is more than meat and raiment, and he'll take care of you. Yeah, that's what he said. Why, well, Jesus said, disciples, if you're, if you're going to live like that, what's the difference between you and the Gentiles? I've called you to follow me. My Father's purposes have to do with you, and you've been chosen by the providential work of my Heavenly Father, and you have this calling and this work to do. You have high-level issues to tend to, and if you're going to live at this level, how are you different from the non-believing world? That's something we ought to think about. If we're going to let mammon control our life, if we're going to be so focused upon material and physical and the things of mammon of this world, then how are we different from an unbelieving world anyway? That's what Jesus taught. And then he gave these lovely, beautiful, wonderful, simple words. As the disciples must have looked at him like, what are we supposed to do? Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Come on. Seek. I see two people nodding their heads, but I've got to have a little more than that. High level issues. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is high level stuff. This is why he saved you and left you in this world. Seek you first the things of God. The things that pertain to God's authority, to God's rule. And seek you first the king, and seek to do his righteousness, what is right before God. Seek first the high-level issues of life. Well, yeah, uh, uh, but no, no. All of these things, they'll be added to you. They will be added to you. He said it. If I stood up here tonight and I said, folks, I have a real question as to whether John 3.16 is really true or not? What would you say? I said, I have a real problem whether John 3.16 can really be trusted or not. You know what would happen to me? I'd get thrown out into 35th Street here somewhere, and rightly so. But you know there are members of Bible-believing churches that are quite, quite sure they can trust the words of Jesus in Matthew 6.33 when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. But I'm going to tell you something. The same man said them both. John 3.16 was spoken of by Jesus Christ. And I'm amazed. I, I am stunned how many people are willing to hang the destiny of their eternal soul on John 3.16 being the truth. But they won't trust Jesus with their money. Or their mammon. Or their things. We trust him in John 3.16. We don't trust him. Well, I never said I didn't trust him. No, but if you're serving over here instead of up here, that's exactly what you're saying. Jesus said, oh, ye of little faith. I'm not being ugly. Jesus said to his disciples whom he loved, oh, ye of little faith. Therefore, take no thought for the morrow. 
Give attention to the things that matter. Give attention to the things of God. Take no thought for tomorrow. Don't have anxiety about the, yes, but we have this president. Yes, but we have this economy. Yes, but our country is in debt. Yes, but we have this problem and that problem. We're aware of all of that as patriots. We ought to care about our country and pray for our country to be sure. But he didn't call us to straighten up any government anywhere. He called us to give attention to his father's purposes. And if we keep from doing that because of, oh, 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 if we keep from doing the high-level issues because of our concern over here, it shows one thing. We have an evil eye, not a single eye. If our attention is over here instead of up here, it shows one thing. We have an evil eye, not a single eye. And Jesus' words are meant to do cataract surgery and peel back the dead cells and remove them where those light rays can come in singly and we can focus upon what we are supposed to focus upon. Lord, once again, and we come to this place so often, <clears throat> when we must confess that it is our responsibility to declare your word and to preach your word, and it's not our responsibility nor our ability even to know exactly where everyone is in their life and I certainly don't know this isn't a flock that you've given me the oversight of and I know some of these uh, dear people as friends and have made acquaintance but I'm not their pastor and I think the pastor would be the first to acknowledge that even he doesn't know the innermost recesses and what's governing and motivating and moving in everybody's life at all times. While a man may know his flock, we confess that we don't know your people like you know them. And it could be that there are some in this room tonight that have that evil eye. And there are some that not only have it, they know they have it and know something ought to be done about it. Maybe some ought to turn aside from their place of seating tonight, bow down before you and say, oh God, give me a spiritual cataract surgery. Clear the haze. Clear the growth, the astigmatism that is keeping me from focusing clearly and properly. Oh God, help me to again care about, focus upon, give devotion to the high level issues of life. Your purposes my Father's purposes and to trust you with the necessities of life. Whoever ought to be making decisions and talking to you or committing their way to you in these matters tonight or in matters that maybe were addressed earlier or at another time entirely than this week that haven't been dealt with. God, I pray that everyone that ought to respond before your throne would and that you'd receive glory from it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. And I'm going to ask Miss Caroline just to begin to play. And we'll just let the piano.